My name is Richard Morellis, and I want to welcome you to the Prison Post. This is your podcast for conversations surrounding the need to reform prisons from the perspective of formerly incarcerated people, community members, and leaders in the restorative justice movement. The Prison Post will feature an episode every Wednesday with people who are in the fight to restore lives and heal communities. I want to bring out this because I think a lot of people can relate to this when their loved ones are in court, when they're 16-year-olds, 15, 16, 17, 18-year-olds at court, and there's these uh, you know, mitigating factors in the background of witnessing domestic violence, being taught how to be a criminal by one's parents, having one's parents in and out of prison, and um, even in this case, being, being someone who is uh, retaliating from somebody who earlier in the day, you know, um, held a gun to your head. These are all factors here on why someone would commit a crime, and yet you still got first-degree murder, 25 to life. Do all those things even matter when it comes to being sentenced? Yeah, so, no. Now now they do. Back then, they didn't. They didn't, they didn't matter at all. Um, they didn't have all the bills and laws that they have now. So back then, they had a mandatory minimum, and they still had a mandatory minimum. So if you're convicted of second-degree murder, that means you got 15 years of life plus if you use a weapon, if you had some other circumstances, they would add on more time. But you had to get, if you were convicted of second-degree murder, you had to get 15 years to life. The same thing with first-degree murder. If you were convicted of first-degree murder, you have to get 25 years to life. That's, that's the law. They took away all the discretion from the judges because they believed it was being too uh, broad, I guess, in, in their sentencing Certain people were getting severely punished and other people weren't. And so this way it would be more equal. Well, they, when you do that, you take out, like you said, the human factor of what's going on behind the scenes. And everybody is absolutely the same. So I was sentenced to 25 years to life for first-degree murder. As far as my upbringing, yeah, they, they knew about it, but it, it didn't matter at the time. I couldn't be charged as a juvenile at that time. And because I was 19 years old, and so I had to be charged as an adult, so your childhood doesn't matter at that point. So I got 25 years to life. I couldn't be charged as a juvenile at that time, and because I was 19 years old, and so I had to be charged as an adult, so your childhood doesn't matter at that point. So I got 25 years to life. It was an extra nine years because when earlier, I, like I said, I had went to the, to the youth, youth authority and when I was in the group home, I had got a gang enhancement. That's mean I, I committed a crime for the uh, purpose of enhancing my gang. That's the, like the legal terms of it. So I was a gang bang, banger committing a crime and so they gave me a gang enhancement. So a gang enhancement, it, anytime you do something in the future, it gives you extra time. And so that was part of the extra time and also part of the extra time was the gun, the use of a firearm. Even though when you murder somebody, you usually use a weapon, they put on extra time for whatever weapon it is. And I think a lot of people don't know that. So for, for a murder, first degree murder, 25 years to life, if you use a weapon, which it would be hard not to, but uh, that's an additional, how many years? Five years. Five it years. Could be and five or four. Yeah, I think it's, it's three, three, it was three, five, and four based on what they wanted, you know, that was up to the judge's discretion and based on some other factors. And if you were a gang member um, committing a crime, that's another four or five years as well? With the gang yeah, enhancement? Yeah, that's another five yeah, that's another five years 
or the, the laws on that have got stricter. So sometimes it's even like a life sentence, another life sentence, because you were a gangbanger, or it might be doubled. So, like, say, if you got 20 years for something, it might turn into 40 years if you did it to enhance your gang, that actual crime. So you spent all your 20s, all your 30s, yeah. and over half of your 40s incarcerated. For me, that seems difficult to comprehend, and and I think for our audience, it's hard to comprehend I think there's mothers and there's sisters and wives and girlfriends and brothers and, and their loved ones been in that long. And it's an enormous amount of time to comprehend. Who do you think that that time has affected the most? Who do I think it's affected the most? Well, obviously I, I committed a, a heinous crime and I murdered a man. So to me, obviously the time it affected him the most because I got this time for murdering this man. So it affected him and his family um, the most. Besides those people, you know, my, my actual victim and his family, my family, I believe it affected them the most. It affected them severely. I don't know how exactly it affected my mother, but I know it has. My sister, it's, it's affected her greatly. She has to plan time and take time out of her life to come visit me, to, to support me, to write me, to, to accept my calls. And when I committed my crime, she was, again, only 11 months older than me. So she was 20 years old, and she lived the same life that I lived. And um, it, it probably was harder for her because she was a female growing up in that environment with a bunch of predators around her. So I know it affected her greatly. She has a daughter now, uh, Trinity, and I've never met her because her father didn't want her coming to prison. She's 17 years old now. She's in her last year of high school, and I've never had the opportunity to meet her face-to-face -face because of the length of time I've been in prison. So it's affected her, and it's affected our, you know, our opportunity to have a relationship. Even on that level, it's affected my sister because it it affected her relationship with with him, with the father of her child, because they had to have that conversation. And she loves me and supports me. So, and this guy's telling her, no, you can't take your child, his niece, to go visit him. And so I know that affected their relationship. Mm. Is she the only family member has come to visit you this whole time while being incarcerated? Yes. Yes. Um, so before he passed away, her father, Al, who I call dad, he, he would come see me. And um, I remember one of the, I remember the first visit um, when yeah. he came up. The first prison I was the first prison I was at, I opened up um, Sinilla. And when I say opened up, I was some of the, one of the first inmates there when they after they constructed the prison. After that, I went to a high desert state prison, which is a level four, 180 design, and the same thing. I was one of the first prisoners there. We opened that, that up. And so she had moved to Reading, and it's not that far from high desert state prison. So her and Al came up to visit me. So I remember the first visit, we're sitting in a visiting room, and he was, like, surprised and shocked that 
no one had came and saw me yet. He was like, hey, your mother, no one's came and saw you? And I was like, no. I mean, you know, she's going in and out of prison, you know. She, she, you know, at the time I was just saying she couldn't come, but, and none of my other family, no, they, they've never came. So the only one, like I said, who came as far as my family members has been my sister. And, um, it's like you said, like, yeah, she's definitely doing time, like, uh, putting her life on hold at certain instances, um, having to revolve around coming to see me. I remember one time they came to see me. They came to see me like three times when I was at High Desert. And one of the times, it was a surprise visit. They wanted to come up and surprise me. And when they showed up, we were on lockdown. So we got an hour behind the glass. Just imagine that. Um, they're coming to see you, two, three-hour drive all the way up there. They got to go through everything, being searched, being looked down upon by guards for, for coming to see an inmate. And then being told, hey, he's behind the glass, you know, and we get an hour and then you guys go. We can't even hug or anything. And so I, I just uh, I just remember the disappointment on their faces. Yeah, so definitely they're, they're doing time. My sister was, she. I have a brother. I, I mentioned him earlier. So he eventually committed a crime also, a murder robbery, and got life without the possibility of parole. He's right now about 50 miles away from me in this prison right here by, beside the Salinas Valley, and I can't see him. And she came to see him one time, drove all the way up here. She was in Kentucky at the time. She flew down here. She drove up there to see him, and then was told he couldn't get visits. So th those are some of her experiences, you know, doing time with her brothers. Yeah, it's a... Uh... Definitely sounds like a labor of love for her and come all that way. Can you, and then to get a visit with you behind the glass, would you, would you uh, give a little bit more of a description of what that means? I mean, some of, some of our listeners may not, might, may not quite know what behind the glass. I mean, obviously there's glass involved, but what does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. So when, when, for most prisons in, in, in California, if you're on a GPR, the regular yard, you go to visit, and there's tables, and you can go out, and you can hug your loved ones at the beginning of the visit, and you can hug them at the end of the visit. If you're married or whatever, you obviously you can kiss them also at the beginning and the end of the visit. And you can sit down, and you can have a conversation with each other right there in each other's presence. For different reasons, at some point, like if you lose your visiting privileges by disciplinary actions or the prison's on lockdown and they're still allowing visits, They'll do what's behind the glass visit. And what that means is they have a row of, like, basically little benches with phones connected in, on each side of the glass. So you're on one phone, your family member's on the other side of the other, the glass with the other phone, and that's how you communicate through that phone for an hour at a time. And once that hour is up, your visit, your, the phone is cut off and your visit is canceled. So you'll never get to hug them. You never get to touch them. Or anything like that. Man, what an amazing uh, a woman to know that she still comes uh, to visit you, to, lo to love you and love your brother. And as I was talking about, you know, you spent all your 20s, 30s, and 40s in there. You know, have you ever thought about that yourself? I mean, how, has that ever hit you? No, it, 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 it hits you. You know, I mean, you, you, you get through certain things in here because, like, I know a lot of people, like, I don't know how I could do that much time or 
like if, if they've never been in prison or I couldn't do it. And uh, But once you have to do it, you have to do it. And so the human being is resilient and we find ways to get through it. Yeah, it, 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 it hit me hard. So, so sometimes I just lay there and I'm like, hey, man, I see youngsters on the TV or on these yards walking. And I'm like, man, I, I, I spent all my 20s in here, all my 30s, and now almost all my 40s in prison. And, yeah, it, it, it hits you hard sometimes. How many prisons have you been to, and what are the names of the ones you've been to? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the names first, and then we'll count them together. <laughs> so <laughs> I was at, uh, I started off at the reception center in Tracy, California. Then I went to Sinilla, then High Desert, then Solano, and now here. So uh, we're uh, solid there. Yeah, solid there, yes. What was your worst moment in prison? Wow. Wow. So, man, I think I want to share a couple, but, but in their worst moments for different reasons. Um, but one of them, I believe early on when I first got to High Desert, it's a level four institution. When the, any new institutions open up, there's a lot of riots. There's a lot of like gang activity inside the prisons to gang control or uh, over different areas because, like, when a prison opens up, no one says, hey, this is your area, that's your area. The inmates have to decide for themselves where they want to sit, you know, what area they want to hang out at. And so sometimes it can become very violent. So they have these little rotundas. The, the prisons are built different depending on the level they are. So you have a level four institution, which is a high security institution. And a 180 design is like the highest of the high. And so it's designed in a way where they can have maximum control over the inmates. They, they control the doors from a tower. They're broke down into three sections. So they have walls in between the sections so they can isolate if an incident happens. So they have these rotundas that you have to walk through to get to the yard. And so I was still young, and I'm, I'm coming out, and we're going to the yard, and I hear the black tell me, hey, try to get out the rotunda fast. They got a, a hit that's going to go down. The southern Spanish are going to take off on the northern Hispanics. And so two rival gangs in prison and outside of prison. So when we're walking through, we don't make it, and I get caught in the rotunda while these guys, three or four guys, are stabbing this guy. And so he, 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 he's, when they, by the time they get him and, and you know, the, the COs and the medical staff get there, he's DOA. And so I, I had to, to, to watch this brutal attack right there. And then they, they put us on the concrete yard until like, this was early in the morning. So we were out there all night. And so to me, like, that was like one of my first, like, real and i had been in a, another riot already i had been in a riot at this point but it was like nothing as brutal and like real close encountered is what i had saw right then and it was like wow man this is prison you were caught in the rotunda and there's no way out what do you mean by doa um uh, mean 
dead on arrival. I mean, since when 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 they when they came and started trying to uh, administer first aid to him, it, it was over. He 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 was, you know, he was dead. They, there was nothing they could do to revive him. So that was like early on in you know prison. Like wow, this 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 is what what prison is. This is prison life. So that was like a a bad moment for me. But like on, on a like, and that's personal because I'm right there in the rotunda. But like on, on a personal note, like. Just moments, like I told you about early on, when my sister and Al came to visit me, and behind that glass, and knowing how far they came, and their sacrifice to get there to see, to see me, and this was Al was coming up there to tell me that he he had got sick, he got a rare lung disease, and um, so he had to start using a um, a breathing machine, like carry around with him and all that, a mask and all that. And um, this is a guy who worked out and was super healthy. You know, he would work out, he would run, he played tennis. He did did a lot of things. So I always knew him as a healthy, fit guy. And to to see him and to see the worry in his face and his eyes, and then he, he had to tell me behind the glass, and I couldn't hug him, and I couldn't be there for him. It, it just, like, it, it really pained me. You know, it, it really yeah. pained me. But I, I'm going to say it's not the worst, but it was a bad moment for me in prison but it was one that i believe helped me into my transformation it was like one of those aha moments for me i had always i had having a had a conversation with a guy named harvey hoskin here and he and he gave me something um and i think we'll talk about it later on in this, on yeah. this interview but he had he had put some words in my my head and so i was in a relationship at the time with my sister's best friend debbie cry and she was coming to visit me and, you know, I was, she was trying to be here for me and I was trying to be there for her. She was going through a, a big battle. She was trying to get on a donor's list because she had cirrhosis of the liver. She was an alcoholic. And she was asking me, you know, at this time, like, hey, you know, I, I need you to try to make it out here. I don't think I'm going to make it. I don't think I'm going to make it that, that long. And um, so I need you to try to, you know, go to board, you know, and, and get found suitable and, and make it out here. And, you know, I, I didn't make it. I didn't, I didn't make it. And so it, it was like, a, I say, one of the pivotal moments for me because I remember back to what Harvey was saying to me, and I knew I wasn't doing everything I could to get out of prison. Right. And so it was like, wow, you know, it really hit me hard. Some of those worst moments became aha moments, and, and you got lessons from them. What were some of those lessons? Yeah, so 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 one of the, the main lessons I, I learned from that was like, hey, you never know what's going to happen. When you're in here, when you're in prison, like some people I know, some, certain people, some people are famous. I'm at Solidarity right now, Solidarity State Prison. So a lot of people might know or they might not know, but there's this guy a black guy that came to prison in the 70s named George Jackson. He was real famous. He was also known as a Solidarity brother. They wrote books and they did a lot of stuff. And he came and he had like a five-year or two-year life sentence and he wound up dying in prison. I think about the guy that got stabbed in the rotunda 
and I don't know what his time was, but I know a lot of guys that came to prison that didn't have life sentences that were supposed to go home that didn't make it home because they chose to live a certain lifestyle in prison. So one of the lessons I learned from that was like, hey, you're not, I'm not promised tomorrow, so I can't just keep depending on, oh, I'm going to get out of prison one day if I'm not putting in the work. So, like, life's precious, man. Every moment is precious. And how I choose to live my life, even if I don't get out of prison, that that was another thing what I told myself. If I never get out of prison, what kind of person do I want to be remembered as? And that's one of the reasons why I love Anne Frank so much and was inspired by her story because, you know, obviously she didn't make it out that apartment. She 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 made it out the apartment, but they got arrested, and she died in a concentration camp. And she lived a life inside of that, even under those circumstances, death every day, where she chose to live her life, even as a young girl, in a way that inspired the people around her. And so the lesson I learned was like, hey, I need to start being that type of person that even if I don't make it out of here, that someone will remember is doing something good and adding some value to humanity. I love that line. And I remember a few other lines from the book that uh, your story's in, the book called Men Built for Others. You know, so in, in the book you wrote, I've now been in prison for 25 years. And for about the first 20 years, this is why I was committed to being. I've had 16 rules violation reports. Those are write-ups ranging from disrespecting staff, possessing cell phones, perpetrating violence, and possessing inmate manufactured weapons. I've also received five less serious write-ups called 128A that staff thought needed to be noted in my file. And I've been placed in disciplinary isolation units three times. I made a lot of superficial changes over my first 20 years of incarceration. But I maintained the same belief system. Even when I wasn't actively engaged in serious or violent crime, I continued to think and behave criminally. I used my beliefs about the system being corrupt, racist, and oppressive to justify why it was okay for me to break the rules. So it sounds like there, you, know, you were describing that old you. But when yeah. did you choose to finally change, and how did that happen for you? Yeah, so it, it, it's similar to what I what I share in, in, in the book. So I was having a conversation with, with, with an older white guy here. He was a lifer. And um, at this point, not too many lifers were going home. And he was one of the first ones who I actually knew that was going home. I had heard about some reading in magazines or whatever, but I knew none personally that, like, hey, I did 50 years in prison or 30 years in prison, and I'm going home tomorrow. So he was one of the first ones for me. And when I first met this guy, like, people said he was a racist. They said he was all kind of things. But as I got to know him and he got to know me, he would share more about himself. And I, I found out that he was just a responsible guy and he was doing responsible things and he didn't want to be around irresponsible criminal people. Not that he was racist, he, he just didn't want to be around a bunch of criminals, right? And so as we got to know each other, one day we were on the yard and we were doing a tournament and he was going to go home before the coach got back. So he said, hey, James, uh, make sure you put my chrono in my file, you know, and I, and I was thinking to myself, like, man, what do you care about a chrono for? And for, for the listeners that don't know what a chrono is, right. <laughs> a, a, a chrono is basically a reading report of something you're doing. So positive sometimes it's bad. They're yeah, positive or negative. And usually 
like 115s or 128s, 128s in chrono, and, it, and it's noted like, hey, this dude's up to something, maybe he should be watched or something like that. That's the negative ones. And then you have what's good chronos, so it's like, hey, this guy is being post-show, so he's active in this, he's doing some good for the community here in prison or out on the streets, and so this should be noted and put in his file. And so my thinking was usually guys are trying to get those when they're trying to go to board and, and convince the board that they need to, they should be going home. Look, look what I'm all I'm involved in. Well, this guy had already been found suitable. This guy was going to be going home. So I was like, man, what do you care about a chrono for? And he says, hey, man, James, you're going to be who you are 24-7, man. You can't be two people. You're only one person, and I'm a programmer, and I'm going to be a programmer for life. And you need to figure out who you're going to be. Those words kind of stuck with me, and, and they were ringing true to me. And so, again, one day after uh, Debbie had died, and I'm sitting there thinking, like, man, those words make so much sense to me now. Like, I'm not doing everything that I could be doing to go home. I'm not really committed to going home. And I'm not committed to people around me, the, the, the Marcellis, you know, that are looking for help and looking for guidance. And I'm not doing any of those things. So I need to d determine for myself who I'm going to be right now, and I need to c commit to being that person. And so that's what I decided to do at that moment. And that's that's the start of my transformation. What year was that? That's great, James. What year was that? That, that was um, two, uh, 2012. And that guy's name was Harvey Hawk? Yeah, Harvey Hawks. All right. Yeah, and I don't think I don't even think he knows the impact that he had on me. We haven't had any contact since then. Well, we're gonna have to find him. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. I remember you saying I started to ask myself, "Who am I? What am I committed to? What do I believe?" It seems like you had that aha moment uh, with with after your conversation with Harvey Hawks. What What did you do? You know, did you just start making new decisions. Yeah, so, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, eventually I started making decisions, but I, I, like I said, I really had to ask myself those questions. So I had to lay down on my bunk and, and just really think about my life and the, the choices I made. Because remember, for a long time, like I said, I viewed myself as a victim. Every time I had made a decision and it didn't work out the way I thought it should, I, I blamed circumstances. I blamed other people, even my victim. You know, I blamed my victim, you know, for, for my crime. I, I blamed him and the system for, for the time I received for that crime. I, bl I had blamed my mother all my life, you know, and my father for my upbringing in the system. For everything I did that was wrong, I, I blamed them. And so I saw myself as a victim. And so when I say I had to ask myself, like, who am I? It's because, look, I wanted, I, I kept telling myself, you know, I'm really a good person. But yet I'm committing these acts only because this situation and that situation. And so it goes back to what Harvey said to me, like, you, you are who you are. And so what I took that to mean also is like, look, you're going to make the decision you make. It doesn't matter what the, what the, what it looks like, what the circumstances look like. Like I talked about with Anne Frank, you know, um, like she, she was going to be dead any day. She, she never knew. And she still chose to live a life a certain way. And, I look back at my life like my sister, Al, these people that were in the neighborhood, the same neighborhoods I was in, and I was making my choices based on what I thought I had to make to survive, and they survived, and they didn't make those same choices. So I That's said, right. you know what, really, I did, 
I didn't right. have to make those decisions. And so who am I? Am I this person that's going to continue to make these decisions and make excuses for my life? Or am I somebody who's going to take control of my life and take responsibility for the choices I made? And I decided, you know what? I'm that person that's going to take responsibility for my choices and the person who I am. So, again, even if I do stay in prison, because for a long time, most people say, well, why do you – you know, act the way you act, and why do you do the things you do in prison? And most people say, well, I didn't have any hope. No lifers were getting out. But other lifers that were in here weren't making those same choices. So, again, I, I asked myself, like, look, even if you do stay in here, who are you? And I decided at that moment, like, hey, look, I'm going to do the right things. I'm going to be somebody my sister can be proud of, my my mother can be proud of, my niece can be proud of, uh, the people around me can depend on. This is the person I'm going to be. And so little by little, I asked myself, is those things came up, like what decisions do I need to make? What what do I have to do to put myself in a position to be the person who I say I am and who I want to be in the future? Some people may listen to the story, your story, maybe think, you know, man, he served 20 years in there before deciding to change his life. You know, I think that there are a lot of family and friends of the incarcerated out there thinking if he waited 20 years before transforming his life, there's hope for my loved one as well. What I'm hearing from you, it could take 20 years, but it doesn't have to. It sounds like a transformation can happen in a moment that it's just a, a decision away. Yeah, that's my belief. Like one decision to the next decision to the next decision. I just keep making that the right choices in those decisions and not give myself over to the temptation to make a decision based on my surroundings or what I believe that I'm the victim of something. I mean, it's real victims in the world that are making decisions to empower themselves and empower people around them. And so even if I see myself as a victim sometimes, I still need to make the decision of empowerment instead of, you know, this all poor me or this is the reason why I'm going to make this decision, which I know is wrong, you know. And it's like you said, it's moment to moment. And it's a commitment to myself and, and, and who I say I am. And it's, and it's the same for everybody. No, people can transform before they commit a crime. People can transform, you know, as soon as they get arrested. People can transform, you know, a year or 10 days after they get arrested. The time, to me, I don't think that's important. That's how long it took for me. But that's because I was so committed to that victim mindset that I was in and blaming other people for my problems and, and for my life and my choices. That's awesome, man. Sooner the better, though, right? Yeah, sooner the better. And uh, wanna... especially now, man, with all the laws that, that are in place to, to help people get out and the support network that's in here and out there that are willing to help the people that want to help themselves, the sooner the better. I remember reading what you said about that. You know, you were talking about before playing the victim and now taking responsibility, just being so, you know, hell-bent on, on being the victim and everything before. And now just with that same vigor, taking responsibility mm -hmm. with your choices, with your honesty, with your outlook and perspective on life. And I remember reading what you said about this in, in the book, Men Built for Others. You said, in the past, I looked for other people and circumstances to blame for my crimes and actions. I blamed others. Because like many other human beings, I was afraid to take responsibility, afraid to see myself as weak, wrong, or bad. Yet... It was only through taking responsibility that I have found the power to transform myself and the situations in my life. Playing the victim helped me get to where I am today. 
44-year-old man who has spent 25 years in prison for the murder of another human being. Now it's time for something brand new. And for me, that means responsibility. When I started to take responsibility for the results that I have in my life, which includes my crimes, my incarceration, my attitude, everything shifted in a more productive and positive direction. In the years since my talk with Harvey, I got rid of my illegal cell phone and stopped engaging in other criminal activity entirely. I went from someone who believed it was impossible to avoid getting into trouble in prison to someone who was dedicated to helping others see that they can choose to live responsibly no matter where they are. I take responsibility for my life, both the good and the bad. I have discovered the power to be present in my relationships and transform my attitude in loving ways from moment to moment. The bitterness and the blame are finally gone, and I am becoming the man that God created me to be. Man, thank you for writing that, James, and thank, and thank yes. you for that perspective. I think if many people had that perspective in prison, we could transform the whole way people think about prison and definitely the culture. Yes, uh, I, I believe so, too, and, and I thank you and, and all the men, you know, that helped put that book together and, and help spread that perspective in here that, like, look, is sometimes somebody could do something to me. Somebody could really come up to me and, and push me for no reason, and I'm still responsible for how I respond, and the power is in me responding and even me asking myself how did I contribute to that situation because there's no power in me just looking at the circumstances around me because if that's the case, then life and other people will always control who I am, how long I'm in prison, that's and right. that's both in these physical prisons and in the mental, and, and not until I take responsibility for all my actions and all my encounters can I find the power. Even if I'm not 100% responsible, what 10% did I play in it so I can control my life? So what are some of the things that you're involved in now that you would have never thought you were involved in back then when you're playing the victim and living criminally in there? Um, what, what, are, what are some of the things that you do in there? Well, well, one of the first things that stands out to me is the book, Men Built for Others. Um, obviously, if I, if I was still playing a victim, I would never have been considered or asked to be part of that project. And that's something that I, I find great value in. And, uh, man, I just want to share this story real quick, and then I'll come back to your your uh, your, your question, if that's okay. No, um, so, um, as I said, I've never met my niece. And she's been talking lately, um, you know, she's older now. She had wanted to meet me and asking my sister about me. And so my sister and them had plan uh, are planning to bring her up here to meet me. And so what had happened, her father found out. And so my sister told me that he downloaded the paper clippings from my case and different things like that and went in and said, hey, I heard you trying to meet your uncle. Well, here's your uncle. And gave him the paper clippings, you know, wanted for murder, you know, all that type of stuff. And said, that's who your uncle is. And he left the room. Then fast forward and this book comes out. I get the opportunity to participate in this book and, and tell, tell my story in a responsible way. And so my sister ordered the book and she took it to my niece on, on and said, hey, read this. This is your uncle now. You know, so just just being able to participate in that I, and and be able to That's show awesome. her that, I, yeah, I would I would never have been able to do that if I hadn't changed my perception and she just transformed who I was. And some of the other stuff that I'm also in, in, involved in, like right now today, 
after I leave the yard, I get to go have a conversation with Palmer High School students who we were raising money from the sale of that book to, for a scholarship fund for that high school. And these high schoolers are coming in here today so we can read poetry about Martin Luther King's statements and, and his quotes and have a conversation with these youngsters about how they're going to transform their lives and transform their communities out there. And so I have an opportunity for that. I have an opportunity to work with hard-nailed college students. I have an opportunity, you know, just to do all these great things in here only because people noticed that I changed and I was living my life in a responsible way. And so I had some value to offer to them. Um, I'm also, like you stated at the beginning, I'm working in the LTOP, uh, the Long-Term Offender Program, and it's for re-entry people also, people that have a year left to go home, uh, uh, six months to go home and they had drug problems and alcohol problems or they're just gangbang problems, whatever criminal stuff they're into. And I get to have an opportunity to work with these men on a daily basis, Monday through Friday on how to get responsible and how to take control of their lives. And so I would have never had that, those opportunities have I not changed my perspective. I hear you fired up about it today. I hear you passionate about, about helping others, about serving. I mean, I mean, you don't, you don't know if you're going to get found suitable at your next hearing, but it doesn't sound like that matters. Yeah, and, and you're absolutely right, man. I, I, I do get fired up about it. I, I, lo- I love helping people. I love giving back. It's, it's like I said, every moment is an opportunity for me to add value to a relationship, to not just form a relationship, to add value to these relationships that I'm forming. And that, that's what I live for right now. And you're right, I don't know if I'm ever going to get out. I believe I am. And if I never do, uh, I understand it was because my actions that I'm in prison. It's because of my actions that I have a life sentence. And, it, and if I am deemed to stay in here, then I'm going to live this life. This is what I'm committed to. And I'm going to touch and help as many people. It's, it, a quote comes to mind. It says, bloom where you're planted. And that's, that's where I'm at right now. This is where I am. And this is the work I'm going to do, regardless of what happens. Thank you for listening to The Prison Post, a production of The Crop Organization. We'll be sharing more stories from the world of prison reform and restorative justice. So please join us. You can listen to The Prison Post on all major podcasting platforms. Subscribe to our video cast on YouTube and like us on Facebook at The Prison Post and at Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs.